try to kill us, but my village too strong. Long live the people. Here we go again with the bullshit you want. Long live the people. We have all these mixed blood people all across the country. We cannot exclude them. There's nothing wrong with being Red River Metis. We are all Metis. There was an attempt to define Metis. And we said no. There's Métis from Red River. What's wrong with Métis from someplace else? And they were also Métis people. Uniting our people is at a very sad state. We are all Métis. Welcome to the Jig is Up. And uh, say everybody say hello to the professor. How's Darcy this week? Not bad. How about you, Jason? Doing good, man. That's good. That's good. So I wanted to uh, start off the show today by acknowledging that uh, not today, but actually on August 18th, 22 years ago, I think it was, uh, there was a standoff at Gustafson Lake. So I wanted to acknowledge those those warriors that stood up for their, their rights and their right to do ceremony. And uh, if you don't know much about Gustafson Lake, there's a, a plethora of information online. So feel free to look that up. Essentially, Do what, what it was. I did. Google it. <laughs> That's right. Google it. Essentially, what it was was it was a uh, standoff. The um, people, uh, landowners, or somebody wanted to develop on top of uh, ground that had been used for Sundance for years and years and years, and obviously that did not fall and sit well with the indigenous in Gustafson Lake area. And so there was a standoff. And it was one of the few times that the government actually used uh, bombs and blew up, uh, tried to blow up trucks that were driving down the road and things like that. And it was quite a violent, violent standoff on behalf of the the government and its agents. So it it was a pretty bad one. Uh, And it lasted until, I believe it was uh, mid-September, Uh, September 19th or something like that. So I just wanted to acknowledge those. And I kind of wanted to lead off with that just because, uh, you know, it kind of makes me think like how far we've come or have we come very far as far as fighting for our rights. Um, You know, how when it comes to Métis stuff, we've, you know, we, we won the Daniels case, but what have we really seen happen since then? And, uh, you know, are we, are we still going to have to see these fights, these armed standoffs. Um, you know, Canada Day, they wanted to put a teepee up, and you saw the RCMP strong-arming them, at least at, at, at the start of it. So have we come very far? What do you think, Jay? Well, after reading up a little bit on the standoff, I think the only thing that we've achieved is we haven't shot off about 70,000 rounds of ammo in the last couple of years, so I guess that's a good thing. Um. But as far as overall relationship um, between Indigenous people and the Crown, I really don't see how things have really changed at all. Well, that's just it. I mean, uh, just looking at the Daniels decision and and, uh, how there's been very little to almost no movement whatsoever there. Um, And it's more like just more of a game, you know. Uh, We won Daniels, but... The government necessarily isn't necessarily moving on anything, at least not very fast. So, and I think you've said this before, where just kind of kick the ball down the road and hopefully somebody else has to deal with it. Well, and I also think it really highlights the failings of the way our current uh, governmental system in Canada works 
in that we can have the legislative branch in the uh, Supreme Court of Canada hand down a ruling, such as the Daniels case, but there's no impetus on the part of the government to enact any legislation. So it's really just an open-ended, uh, you know, you can call it a win, but if it's not uh, made some kind of impetus for the government to act, um, I just feel that this will result in probably further court cases. But again, if the court can't mandate the government to act, really, can we call it even a win? Well, that's just it. And, uh, you know, you look at other things. Uh, well, granted, it wasn't a Supreme Court decision, but the Human Rights Tribunal with the uh, unfair or unequal um, you know, financial support for Indigenous children and in, um, in social programs and that Cindy Blackstock fought so hard for. And, I mean, she's won that. They've threatened the government. They've warned the government. They've told the government. And I think we're going on to the third year now that or second year that um, there's been no action as far as equal funding. So, so none of these things seem to be moving the government, at least not in any type of speed. You know? Yeah, and I think that's that's the real disconnect is we have these different branches and agencies that are supposed to advocate and in the Supreme Court of Canada actually make binding law, but there's a real failure on the far t- uh, part of the House of Commons to pass or table legislation that would reflect these these different rulings. And that's very concerning, I think, long term, not only for Indigenous people, but it should be, you know, um, concerning for Canadians, you know, involved in the electoral process at all, that can the government continue to ignore the courts? Exactly. And and they seem to be. I mean, uh, just recently I read that they're, they've, the courts have extended, given them an extension on the removal of the sexism of the Indian Act until mid-December now. And... Then they'll face. Then, it, then the courts will. You know, there will be consequences. But it, what is the consequence? Um, if the government just sits and does nothing, well, then the Indian registry doesn't doesn't continue. So is that? You know, it just doesn't seem to be motivating for them, and that is to me a very sad reality of how broken our system is. So when you look at things like, you know, you take those as uh, court rulings, but when you look at serious matters like. Um, Anything that would require some sort of standoff or where people decide that's it, we've had enough. Um, all of these court decisions are great. It just leads to more frustration when the government doesn't act. And then you have standoffs. And then the government decides, well, it better use violence to get rid of that standoff. So I, at this point, I'm not very confident that we wouldn't see... It, it may may not be as violent as Gustafson Lake was or as violent as Olga. But I still think you would definitely see a military uh, response to any type of standoff at this point. Well, I'm actually more concerned about violence than I, I would have been a few years ago, given the ever-growing racial tensions we see across the board. I think if if uh, the more Indigenous people push for recognition of our rights and our sovereignty over the land, I think this growing tensions we have in Canada... Uh, are only going to be exasperated because we don't have any movement on the Crown's part to enact, you know, its proper legislation to reflect this new reality, well, new to the Crown reality, um, about Indigenous rights. And so because the Crown's going to fail to act, and is failing, it's only going to get worse as more Indigenous people move to the land, move to protect water, 
these kinds of uh, divides are going to grow. So whether it creates tension with the crown directly or with the different uh, segments of Canadian society, I think that's that's inevitably where this is going to go. Well, that's a very good point too. Yeah, um, and and likely a lot of this stuff basically is really what it's doing is just creating more of a divide between people between Indigenous and non-Indigenous. Um, and I don't know if that's the government's you know goal in all of this, but it sure seems to be an outcome. That, that happens when they fail to act um, and and fail to address these issues. And it just seems like then more pe- people get more and more upset thinking, oh, well, see, the, you know, they just want more handouts and they want more free stuff. And the government doesn't seem to really address that that type of attitude. Yeah, and I think that's the real the real problem with where we're at right now is, you know, Canada spent a very long time weaving a fairy tale about its own origins and you know you know i've talked about this before is there's a a kind of a reckoning that needs to take place between the mythical history of canada and the reality in its treatment of indigenous people and without proper legislation to begin to add a legal framework to that i'm not sure how the general populace you know who are getting older like i am who haven't probably read a book since they got out of university are going to be able to um, disseminate that information. Well, exactly. And I, I guess the kind of leading into that, um, there was an article I read just today that uh, we we weren't really planning on talking about, but it was that uh, in Ontario, there's going to be an Indigenous-specific courthouse now. And uh, there were some mixed reviews. I think, for the most part, they're calling it a Gladue court. Uh, and I think it's to address the... Well, the article I read said it was to address the 1999 Supreme Court decision on the Gladue um, files that the govern that people are supposed to be able to get. Um, but the fact mm-hmm. that the Gladue system is so uh, cumbersome and and basically is failing so bad that in order to in a, and as a response to that failure, they're going to have an indigenous courthouse. And, uh, I mean, maybe maybe that'll help. Maybe. I don't know. Well, I'm hoping by having it, at the very least, it might expedite some of these legal cases that seem to take decades and decades before they see the light of day. Um, maybe having something specifically allocated to our Indigenous issues in regards to the court system might be helpful. But given the estate affairs in Canada, I'm, I'm not... Uh, you know, I still probably have a better chance of winning the lotto. Well, exactly. Well, and the truth is, is I think it's going to be more of a criminal court case, not necessarily have mm-hmm. anything to do with dealing with Indigenous rights or constitutional issues. It's simply going to be, oh, you were charged with, uh, you know, um, whatever, assault. And instead of going to regular court, oh, right, right, yeah. you can go to this court. So I think that's what it's going to be. But it was uh, very interesting that they're actually opening the uh, a separate courthouse that Indigenous people can apply to have their case put towards. And right. again, I, I don't know what the application process is going to be like. I'm sure it will be bureau- very bureaucratic and cumbersome if if we can count on the Canadian legal system for anything It's that. Yeah, no kidding, eh? So moving on from that, so I and I wanted to just, uh, you know, again, shout out to all the warriors that are still around from Gustafson Lake and, and what they did there. But moving on from that, I wanted to move uh, 
So moving from those warriors who stood up and were willing to, essentially willing to die for their land and for their cause, we move into some posts that i seen online. <laughs> there, there was two in particular. One was a uh, person who was in educating everybody on how to properly follow Robert's rules during meetings and things like that, of that nature. So we're talking... Uh, you know, the, the 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 whole Robert's Rules thing, for those who don't know, is that you have a, a person who's chairing the meeting and the chair has to acknowledge you before you can speak. The and, and they have to motion things and then somebody has to second the motion for the motion to pass and and those kinds of things. And uh, it's used by a lot of nonprofits and a lot of uh, boardroom type um, structures to move a meeting along and stay on track so that nobody can derail the meeting. And uh, But I thought it was interesting that you have a, an organization that's calling itself a government, is fighting for its people, but is fighting each other about how to use, properly use Robert's Rules. And I know you're a big fan of Robert's Rules, Jason, so you, I knew you'd have, you may have something to chime in. Yeah, I was, I seen those posts and it, you know, it's one of those great facepalm moments. That, uh, again, we talk about, you know, how these organizations, you know, you know, the cartel likes to position themselves as a government. But uh, last time I checked, no government follows the Roberts rules. That's it for nonprofits and other kinds of administration organizations. And the fact that we want to school each other on the proper use of them is highly funny. You know, I, I, I shake my head is because there's probably nothing more indigenous, right, than Robert's Rules meetings. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it, it goes back to this. Uh, I, I, there's a quote from Arthur Manuel where he, he says, you know, you can't, you can't cry on the shoulder of the people who stole the land. And I, I can't help but think of that whenever I see posts like that simply because you're using the colonizer system, the people that took everything from all of your people, all of our people, you're using their systems of even running a meeting in order to call yourself a government. But you're a government under their rules, by their restrictions, the way they tell you to be, and you can't even hold your own meetings in a, in a way that is traditional or more, I guess, uh, indigenous uh, traditional. Um, or even more, you know, just more Métis, you're still using their system for everything. So I don't know how you call yourself a, a government and a nation when you're using another nation's nonprofit structures and, and boardroom rules. Uh, it doesn't make sense to me. Well, yeah, that's exactly right. So on one hand, you have the Roberts rules, which aren't a form of governance. They're a form of holding a meeting to which it doesn't not i mean the canadian government doesn't use the roberts rules in their meetings they don't use the roberts rules in the house of commons for sure um but on the same note if you have these organizations and they wish to employ these rules as some kind of standard to have their meetings you know regardless of what i feel about it then they better enforce them they better you know tote the line and they better hold proper meetings according to their governances otherwise you know what what are you really you know, how can you say, oh, we're going to follow these set of rules or this set of parameters and then come meeting time, you know, and that all flies out the window. So I understand the grievance on the one side. 
is if you're going to have Robert's rules and that's the shtick you want to go by, not my shtick, of course, but that's if that's what you wanted to do, then by all means, you better stick to the rules. Absolutely. No, I, I agree. I mean, you, you once you set your rules, you got to you got to play by them. Um, but you know, maybe it's time for organizations uh, like the cartel and, and any organizations to to start thinking about ways that they can move away from these these uh, colonizer or or <laughs> very colonial uh, ways of having meetings and, and nonprofit board structures. But well, what really makes me laugh about this more than anything is. The government itself doesn't follow the Roberts rules because Roberts rules aren't for governance. They're for holding uh, specific types of boardroom meetings. And so if you're looking at governance, look at the House of Commons. The House of Commons doesn't use Roberts rules to hold its governance sessions. Exactly. You know, when legis- when legislation gets tables, when it tabled, it gets discussed in the House of Commons. There's no Roberts rules there. Yeah, exactly. And it's the same thing on the provincial side. Yeah, you know, the... The legislature doesn't operate on Robert's rules. Exactly. So how how can the Robert's rules, or how can a government say that, or an organization say that they are a government governance structure, but then use the Robert's rules for that? Exactly. When no governance structure uses them. Exactly. Well, and you know, I mean, it's the same as using the nonprofit board structure and calling that, trying to make that into a government. There's no government in the world, uh, save maybe a dictatorship here and there, that would use such a, uh, a system. I mean, you essentially have all of the power in one person, um, and that just isn't that just isn't the way any government in Canada works. So even to use that kind of a structure, that nonprofit board structure, is, is not that's not a government system. You can't turn that into a governance system. It just doesn't lend itself for that. So, Roberts rules and nonprofit board structures—they just don't make a good government. Well, it isn't government at all. But if if you're going to try to foist your organization and say you are a government and you want to pretend the Roberts rules is some kind of democratic process, well, then you know, by golly, you better stick to those rules. Well, in exactly. Meeting. You can't you can't say that these are our agendas, these are our bylaws, these are our structure, and then come time to you know, get business done while you just throw that out the window. Yeah, exactly. Now that kind of leads on to the next post that I saw that kind of had me shaking my head, which was a post um, about somebody was explaining how the the Métis Nation of Alberta Association um, and how difficult it would be for them to in, implement something like electronic voting. Uh, you know, it's just there's a lot of cost to it. There's, you know, you have to have a way to verify people and it's just really cumbersome and very, uh, very much a, a, a huge uphill climb on that. And uh, I, you know, there was a lot of people that were just kind of more annoyed that uh, this person even posted that, saying, "Well, you know, we're in the age of technology, so it's it's definitely doable." And uh, I think for the amount of money that the MNA gets, I, granted, I realize that they get specific funding for specific things. But I think to a lot of people, they see that the MNA gets whatever, a few million dollars. Well, how much does it cost to put a few polling stations or elect, or come up with an, an app for your phone that you can verify yourself, right? Well, yeah, I've looked at that before, and you and I have talked about this off air, is that that really with when you already have a web domain uh, and you're hosting those kinds of things, how hard it really is it when everybody has a membership number 
and you already are supposed to be getting paid. I think the last toll, what was the uh, the MNC and its affiliates got? $55 million for their registry role? Yep. So I'm pretty sure if uh, we were getting $55 million for our registry role, it should be fairly accurate and up-to-date. So putting that into a database with a login screen and a profile should be fairly easy. Well, I would think so, yes. Um, and I think if your records were up to date on all your members, it would be very easy to get that information to your members. I mean, you know, the government of Canada gets that information out to, you know, 20 million people, 20 million eligible voters every four or five years. So, it, you know, it just cannot be that difficult for an organization of 30,000 people to get that information, to get, like, to mail them a secure code that they can log in with. That only they can log in. Well, you don't. It doesn't even have to be that complicated. If you have a valid registry, which they are getting paid to maintain, you, then your individual membership number should be your valid ID login. Yeah. You know, it's it's pretty simple. Yeah. You know, and 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 I would trust. And we can talk about voter fraud and all these kinds of things. But uh, I'll be quite honest. I'd like to see some voter fraud in the Métis Nation turnout voting because. Anything would be better than less than one percent. <laughs> yeah, so that is if, true. If you've got if you've got the impetus and the time to, to vote ten or fifteen times, and you want to take that kind of time, well, heck, you're doing more involvement there than most people are. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I never I never thought of it that way. That's a that, yeah. That's that's very true. Uh, I mean, but the truth is, though, is like, you know, I looked into some apps and stuff, and I'm I'm sure, I, you know, honestly, I think for about $100,000, you can develop an app that would have a secure, um, a way to securely log in to vote. I mean, all fo- almost all phones have like a fingerprint thing now. So it, it just, the technology's there, and it's, it's really not that complicated. Um, as complicated as they like to think it is. Yeah, I don't think for the amount of money that this organization gets and the amount of people that they say they represent that it really should be this big of a stretch to make online voting available to all of its members and make ease of access and transparency on the voting polls, you know, open to everybody. But hey, uh, maybe uh, you don't want that. You know, maybe you're uh, happy being the person at the top and having less than 1% turnout because that 1% is probably mostly your friends. Yeah. So it works for you. Well, and to be honest, if you're going to call yourself a government and you're going to change the name from members to citizens, well, isn't the onus on you to ensure that your citizens are capable of voting? I mean, we're still are like are we still at the point where we're relying on 30,000 people to take a weekend off and show up in one location in Alberta in order to cast their vote? Because that's ridiculous. And, I mean, that was should have been ridiculous 20 years ago. So, I, I mean, is is that what... And again, there's no government in Canada that would ex- expect, you know, an entire province of people to show up in one location to vote. That's just ridiculous. Yeah, the whole thing is, is fraught with problems. And they're, they're, I think their denial or unwillingness to move forward into the modern era and make the system open and transparent really shows how fragile this top-down structure is 
and how divisive and competitive it really is to try to get these top positions and, and you know, the, the lucrative paychecks and, and things that go with them. Absolutely. So I think it's just, it's detrimental all the way around. Uh, and I don't see how it builds, builds bridges. I don't see how it builds community. I don't see how it builds inclusiveness, you know, even if regardless of how I feel about my place in that organization outside of it, if, if you were a card carrying member uh, within it, you would probably want to see some change. No, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So, uh, okay, so now we've uh, kind of, you know, talked about that and, and the fact that if you can't, again, it goes back to that discussion that we talked about last uh, episode where we were actually ranting and raving, um, where we were talking about you can't just rename things and then suddenly that's the reality. You know, I, I can't suddenly just call my house an estate or uh, its own country, and, and but that's the name I changed it to. And that's kind of what they were doing with their bylaw changes was you're not a member anymore, you're a citizen. Well, a citizen of what? Like, that, just because you change the name doesn't make it so. And I think this is an, a just kind of more, to me it's an extension of that where, of that discussion where just because you, you say that you're a government, but you're not. You're a non-profit board, board of a handful of people that have board positions and those board positions are voted on. But the truth is, is a nonprofit board is never meant to be 33,000 people voting for them. It's meant to be a handful of people that run a nonprofit organization. And so it just, the whole thing is just, you can, you can dress it up however you want. In the end, it's still not a government, at least in my mind. Well, and on a personal level, you know, I don't know what kind of a leader of an organization of 33,000 people could sleep easy at night knowing that they only have a less than 1% engagement when it comes to deciding their leadership and somehow be proud of that. Absolutely. And, and be and be happy with that kind of stuff and not be really working to make a difference. How could you not want as accountable leadership uh, caring about the Métis people want to see something far better and far greater than 1%? Well, that's just it. And I mean, it, it is well within their power to make these changes. It is well within their power to to get these things done. But they, they don't because it works for the handful of people that have the power to make the change. It's no different than, you know, going back to uh, crying on the shoulder of the government that took the land from you. It's no different than that. You can't go to the government and expect them to just be, just go, oh, well, you know, you're right. We feel so bad. We're just going to give you all the land back. That is never going to happen. So you can't, you have to, you have to, the, the people that have the power to change it are the ones who benefit from what they, what has happened. And so you can't expect them, you can't really truly expect them to change it. No, and I think that's what, what I know that we've talked about at great lengths and it's probably one of my biggest personal pet peeves is that looking to these cartel organizations as though they're going to do something for the Métis people or somehow going to benefit the Métis people is as much of a farce as looking at the AFN and thinking that that's true Indigenous governance. You know, all one has to do is get on any Facebook page these days and, and you'll find out what the grassroots people think about, you know, uh, the, that chief and council system that they got going on there. And when we look at our Métis organizations, we should have that same disdain and understand that these are government employees working at the behest of the government, not they're not here for Métis people. Absolutely. 
And and you know that leads into the next thing I wanted to talk about, which was the uh, the M and A put out this great big um, thing on their fa- on their uh, website, and it was about how they're in talks with the Alberta government right now to have a harvesters' rights framework discussions and have and they're also having framework discussions at a federal level and things like that. Now. Honestly, I don't put a lot of stock into this because all it is is really we're having, they have a framework to have lots more discussions. And I mean, you know, me and you every other Tuesday have a great discussion and we record it, but it doesn't change the world. You know, Donald Trump's still in power and I, crazy stuff is still going on. So we're not changing the world here, but we're having lots of discussions. And that's kind of how I look at what they're doing. Well, they're having lots of discussions. But does that actually put any impetus on the, you know, Alberta government, the federal government, municipal governments to really make any effective change? Yeah, well, one on on the discussion note, we probably have more transparency in our discussion than the MNA does, so that's funny. <laughs> um, yeah, well, that's the, very uh, true. Yes. <laughs> the the thing I I find most frustrating about this the MNA talking to the provincial government about harvesting rights. And I know harvesting rights comes up quite a bit if you're an older person, like I'm getting to be, you know, it's it's something that has a lot of meaning and a lot of value to who we are as Métis people. Um, looking to the MA to have that conversation with the provincial government, I think you're absolutely right, Darcy. It's just going to be a conversation because the, the provincial government, since they got rid of the harvesting framework, has been very clear about their position and they've made no bones about it. They're going to stick with the Pali ruling. They're going to enforce the 160-kilometer boundary on a historical community. Any community that wishes to have harvesting rights is going to have to pass the individual Pali test for that individual community. That is the end of story. There is not going to be an open-ended uh, framework like there was before where Métis people get the same treatment as our First Nations cousins where we can hunt where we just happen to be living. I've, I've sat in on several meetings and the, the bureaucrats behind the scenes of the politicians have made it very clear. They've consulted their lawyers, they've hedged their bets, and they're willing to ride this out in court. So I'm not sure exactly what the M&A is going to talk about, but unless Notley is going to have some real big change of heart, I don't see any days soon where Métis people in Alberta universally uh, are going to get harvesting rights. Well, but exactly. I mean, you're basically relying on the Alberta government to feel, I don't know, feel some sort of guilt that we don't have hunting rights. But at the end of the day, let's, let's pretend for a minute that the government was even contemplating giving out a moderate amount of, of cards, harvester's cards. What that means for the Alberta government is it doesn't. It probably doesn't mean that they're going to get more enough votes to really change the next election or get them re-elected. Um, but what it does do is it cuts into the amount of money that they're in bringing in from people that are currently now buying hunting licenses, fishing licenses, and things like that. So you're going to see a drop in income and of revenue... And for what benefit? Because it's not like they're going to give out, you know, 100,000 cards and those 100,000 people are now going to be good, loyal voters for the currently sitting NDP. So 
I mean, when you look at it from a government perspective, there's got to be two outcomes. Either they get money out of the deal or they get votes out of the deal. And I don't... Well, I, I think that's a solid either. point. And, and if you're involved in the hunting community at all, you'll know the very fact that a lot of the uh, pro sports hunting group uh, pin all evils that go on in the woods regarding um, hunting on Indigenous people. So I can guarantee you right now, if you want to get a politician reelected, you're definitely not going to give uh, Métis people the right to hunt because, you know, I'll be honest, there's not a sportsman out there who thinks that's that's a good idea. They blame everything that goes on. Overfishing, overhunting is all the problem of First Nations people and Métis people who feel they can hunt anywhere they want. And I, that's a huge fallacy, but it is the, the perceived reality. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and that's the thing. I mean, you, you know, again, you look at what, what are they going to gain out of it? They're not gaining a bunch of votes, and, and that's a good point. They actually would end up losing probably a lot more votes than they would ever gain, simply because those there is a lot of hunters in this province, and a lot of them would be very, very unhappy. Um, so you're right. Absolutely right. Uh, so I, I don't see where this discussion is going to go um, other than, you know, it's very easy for the government to say, sure, we'll sit down and talk about things with you, no problem. Because then we're reconciling, right? But that, you know, that's talk. And there's there's no, even in their memorandums of understanding that were signed by both the federal and provincial levels, there is no commitment on any government in Canada to actually act or take action on anything. All of those memorandums and all of these framework discussion things is to have more discussions. So they, they agree to meet with the... Uh, meet with them more often. Great. But what does that mean for Métis people? It means nothing. Because no action is being taken. Other than, you know, the there's probably about six or seven people that get to travel on, on taxpayer money to go to have meetings where they eat at restaurants on taxpayer money and they stay in hotels on taxpayer money and they get to talk to the government about things and they walk away going, oh, we had a great discussion on harvesters' rights. And the government walks away going, we sure did. And the government gets back to doing business and, and getting things done that's going to get them reelected. And that's it. I think that's exactly I think that's exactly right. I think I haven't seen one publication from the Notley government that says talking to Métis people about harvesting is on their radar at all. This is simply a ploy being put out by the, uh, the Métis Nation Association to make themselves see relevant uh, to the whole process. And so, you know, or that they're fighting for your rights, which I think is, is very misleading and it's a, a, a big injustice because it's simply not going to happen. You know, they're, it's on the M&A's agenda and they might check it off and saying, yeah, we brought it up at a meeting. But other than that, I guarantee you the M&A has no traction to move, you know, harvesting rights forward at all. Well, and, and how would they? I mean, you know, what have they got to bargain with? Um, the Alberta government's agreed to give them a little bit more money already. So what do you like? What what are you bargaining with? It's not like you're gonna. Are are you going to stand off? Are you gonna like? What are you gonna do? You're going and simply asking the government if they would please feel bad enough to give you hunting harvesting rights. Well, of course they're not because it it doesn't benefit them enough to do so. Um, I mean, the, and again, like you said, they're not, it's not even on their radar. 
I mean, they're they're dealing with billion dollar, you know, financial decisions. Harvesting rights just simply are not that big of a deal for them. They will sit down, have a 20-minute meeting, and talk about them with you for sure, and they'll walk away and make you feel great about it because that's what politicians do. A good politician will sit with you, make you feel like you are the number one person in their world, and that everything you say is the most important thing they've ever heard. And as soon as you leave their office, the next person that walks in is the most important person in their world and blah, blah, blah. And that's how they operate. So <laughs> you're, you're not well, going to see exact, action. It's exact. No, you can't. And you're exactly right. Because look at what we were talking about earlier. If the Supreme Court of Canada can make a, a ruling and the federal government has no impetus to put any in legislation, you know, what is it all? What is, the, what is really going on in these political branches in the, the provincial and federal government? They're, is this passing the buck to some other administration, you know, so that they can make sure they get their pensions padded? Absolutely. And at the end of the day, I, and I, I think the uh, the Alberta government, uh, this is something that I'm, I'm sure they they are well aware of. But at the end of the day, uh, realistically, the Alberta government can do the whole pass the buck thing. Because now, Daniel says, the Métis are a federal fiduciary duty. Well... If it comes, push comes to shove, there I have no doubt that the Alberta government would probably end up going. You know what? Um, we're gonna, you're gonna have to go talk to the federal government about something like that. Uh, I don't about anything, and they've kind of always got that ace in their back pocket to to shove the, at least shuffle the responsibility long enough for them to walk away and not have to deal with you anymore for a while, and and give them another, you know, two, three to four years of not having to deal with that issue because now you're trying to deal with it on a federal level. So they've always got that ace in their back pocket just waiting to be used. And, and I, well, let's be absolutely. The, the provincial government is, if it was ever challenged, is definitely going to kick this back to the feds and then the feds and the provinces are going to fight it out because uh, hunting, harvesting and land both fall under provincial jurisdiction under the constitution. Uh, so, you know, this is a big gray area within the, the Confederation of Canada. So while Métis people might be a federal responsibility, the resources we're talking about, which is access to land and hunting, are pro under provincial jurisdiction. So this is by no means a straightforward process anymore. Yeah. Well, and, and is it, you know, we look at things like... Um... Uh, Jordan's principle, where essentially that's what it was, was the they kicked around everything until a young a young man died, because they wouldn't pay for his health care, and because it's federal, no, it's provincial. That's federal, no, it's provincial. So is that you know that's a game that they can continue to play, even though the Daniels ruling said, well, the responsibility is on the federal government, but like you said, with the segregation of duties out, that's a provincial obligation. So. We're we're just gonna see more of that, and I wish uh, I wish that these organizations that had these the ability to talk to the government would perhaps iron out some some in my opinion bigger issues at first. Like, are we going to have to instill our own Jordan's principle version before somebody dies or after? Is this going to be an issue when it comes to healthcare, uh, paying for healthcare for Métis people now? Are things like you know there's there's there is actually life and death issues that, that could come up from these provincial and federal territory boundary issues. Let's deal with those before we we you know and then maybe maybe on top of that 
we can lead into some sort of discussion about harvesting rights. But at this point, I just don't see the Alberta government feeling feeling so bad for us that they're going to move forward with harvesting rights for everybody. Well, that's exactly right. We've got a lot of issues on the table, and I think what this really boils down to when we talk about the ineptness and inability of the both levels of uh, federal and provincial government to do anything beneficial for the Métis people, A, we have to stop going to them and acting like they are going to do something for us, because clearly they're not. Court ruling after court ruling is determined that their willingness to act on our behalf is nil, and so that's a waste of our time. I think if we really want to see change in our communities, if we want to really see uh, a better tomorrow than we have today for our, our children and our grandchildren and our other little ones, we're going to have to do it ourselves. And that means coming together as people and communities, probably in a way that we've not done in a very long time. Absolutely. And, and I mean, to put things in perspective uh, for those listening that may not know, um, I read a little while ago that the, the number one uh, point in the Constitution that has had the most court challenges that went to the Supreme Court of Canada. Hands down, if you compiled all of the other constitutional points and put them together, it still wouldn't match the amount of cases that the Supreme Court has ruled on, on Indigenous rights. So you have a Supreme Court that has ruled literally hundreds of times on Indigenous rights. And over the last, say, 40 years even, how much further ahead are we? We're not very far ahead. So we can't rely on Supreme Court decisions. We can't rely on the government because these it's a myth that as soon as you get a Supreme Court decision, oh, well, now everything's going to be gravy. We're just going to be walking the good path now. It hasn't changed. You know, hundreds of court decisions have not changed anything, really. I mean, little bits and pieces here and there. But overall, I mean... We still have sexism in the Indian Act. That was ruled on in the 80s. How, what, what are you really expecting out of the Daniels decision? It'll be, you know, 2030 before the Alberta government goes, well, maybe we should think about it. Like, I mean, realistically, that's how the government seems to work. That's right. And I think that that really puts the ball in our court that if we want to see change and we want to see real advancement for Métis issues, and maintaining an expansion of our way of life within the, the framework uh, of a government that's not going to do anything for us, then we're going to have to learn to not only play the system, but we're going to have to learn to play it to our advantage. And that means we're going to have to really uh, knuckle down and come together as a community and stop looking to organizations to do that. And we're going to have to get in and support real leadership and real people working for change uh, so that we can see the things we want to see preserved. Absolutely. Absolutely. We definitely, we're definitely at that point. We, we need to, you know, we need to end these divisive identity politics. We need to stop fighting each other about who's more Métis because my ancestor was three generations closer to me than yours and who's less Métis. It's irrelevant. The bottom line is, is the more we fight with each other and the more we don't organize, the longer it's going to take to get any real change to happen. Uh, and, the, the best way to make change is at the community level. I mean, that, that, that is how communities, even within the city of Calgary or places like that, when you see communities come together to beautify their own neighborhoods, you know, they could sit around for 20 years waiting for the, the city of Calgary to decide, yeah, okay, we're finally going to get around to funding some of your projects. Or they can just 
get together and do it themselves. And uh, there's I, there are case after case after case and examples of those here in the, just in the city of Calgary alone, where communities came together and said enough's enough. We're just going to do it and get it done. And uh, and that's where we're at. I think uh, like you said, that's where we're at. And I think that's what we need to end up doing. I agree. I mean, if we want to see Métis lands and we want to see lands in the hands of Métis people, then let's sit down and make that happen. I think we have uh, enough Métis-run businesses and enough smart people. You know, we may not be the richest people, but, you know, there's 30, there's 90,000 Métis people in this province. How long would it take us to start fundraising a few dollars here and a few dollars there and let's start buying up this government land and these, these places and let's start making a real Métis homeland? Let's do it ourselves. Why wait for the government to give it to us? We have the ability to buy land. Why don't we buy land? Exactly. Cults like the Church of Scientology seem to be able to do it. I mean, we certainly should be able to. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, uh, you know, we're not, no one's going to ever give it to us. And if we're going to no. wait for things to be given to us, we're going to be spending another $150 million in court in another 30 years. And, you know, I'll be dead by the time, you know, I find out how that works out. So if we want to see real change for my kids and, and your kids and grandkids, well, then we need to start working together to make some real changes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So a few weeks ago, we uh, we put out a flag uh, contest where we had people, if you went and commented and rated us and went to iTunes and Podbean and our Facebook page, and we had quite a few people go, so I wanted to get the, we said we'd draw the name on August 22nd, so here we are, we're, we're drawing the name live. I have all the names in front of me, and I'm just shuffling them around. And we're going to pick one, and hopefully it's a name, because some usernames were quite interesting. And <laughs> I'm going to go with Live Life 2. And I think I know who that might be. So Live Life 2 is the grand winner of the Métis flag, and uh, that person gets to choose red or blue. So good for them. So congratulations, Ooh. Live Life 2. Yes. And thanks for everybody else that took the time to uh, uh, like all our media and post comments and stuff like that. It's really nice to see the feedback. It is. And to be honest with you, it does help us out a lot, um, even in just uh, some of the comments, even though they were all positive. So that's great. Thank you. Um, I was expecting to maybe see one or two that weren't, but uh, I'm very appreciative of those. But even even the positive ones really do kind of help us remember what the show is for and, and what we're focused on. So it it encourages us to keep going. So thank you very much. And I wanted to say on one of the last things I want to talk about was uh, the, an event coming up um, in Fort McKay, Alberta. And it's on August 25th, 26th, and 27th. And it's a Fort McKay May Tea Days. And it looks like it's going to be a great time. Admission is free. Now there's going to be tons of stuff for kids to do. And I actually will be heading up there on August 25th to go check it out. And hopefully, uh, you know, talk to a few people and record a few a bit of stuff for the podcast so that you guys that can't make it up there can kind of hear how the event went or how it's going or what people think of it. So uh, hopefully I remember all my gear this time, and that will make it really helpful to record, not like our camp. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> hopefully if you can make it up to that, I encourage everybody to go. And if you if you do make it up, come and see me. I'll probably be the guy wearing the Jig Is Up t-shirt, so you should be able to find me. Shouldn't be too hard, and I'll have my daughter with me, so it'll be a great time. And other than that, oh, and I did have, I read some news today that our, the artist that does our opening music, Dreeses, he is actually going, he got invited with the group of people um, that did that Standing Rock song, 
with uh, the guy from Black Eyed Peas. And they're actually going to the MTV Awards, so hopefully they're performing, which would be really awesome. But a big shout-out to Dreezus for that. I think that's great for a local local guy to get that kind of a break. That's awesome. And, uh, yeah, check out his music. He's got a new single out, and he should have a new album coming out soon, I think. So check him out on DreezusMusic.com or iTunes. Any last words, Jason? No, I think that was good. Uh, and I uh, like I appreciate everybody uh, tuning in and uh, giving us the positive feedback. And uh, I also can't wait for uh, Dreezus' new album. Yeah, I think it's going to be pretty good. I got the new song, and uh, the new song is fantastic. So check it out. It's called, uh, I think it's called Get Up. So definitely check that out. All right, that's it. That's all I have. That's all we have. So for now, the jig is up. Long live the pink. Hey, my late cooking came from Kawaka to Express. Real world, you woman probably popping loose dead. It's poor man's if you want to talk the language. A hundred clicks north of RG is the rest. You still got to be a chief to wear a headdress. So take the shit off before you ruin it for the rest. You better listen to your heart. There's too many heads. Watch what you say, man. It's way too many feds.